All right, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Hosea chapter 4. The book of Hosea chapter 4. Uh, we've been making our way through Hosea over the past few weeks, and when you, when you step back and look at the book of Hosea as a whole, what you find is that the first three chapters function almost like a parable, which is then explained in the remainder of the book. Now, I don't mean that what happened in those first three chapters was only figurative. I mean that the truths God is going to say to Israel in chapters 4 through 14 are dramatized in the real historical events of Hosea's life in chapters 1 through 3. So hold your place here in Hosea chapter 4 and look back just a page or two to the the very beginning of this book in, in chapter 1 verse 2. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea. I don't want you to miss that. When God began to speak through Hosea, He first spoke to Hosea. Now chapter 4 begins by saying, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. So if chapters 1 through 3 are God's words to Hosea, chapters 4 through 14 are God's words through Hosea to the people of of Israel. Now, of course, the message is consistent, but I mention that because there are two opposite temptations we might have as we read a prophet like Hosea. The first temptation is that we would ignore the context into which God spoke these words. Before we can apply them to ourselves, we first have to pay attention to how they were directed to the people of Israel at this particular time in history. And the opposite temptation is that we would think, well, this has nothing to do with me at all. This is just an interesting historical lesson about what God said to the people of Israel a long, long time ago. And we may or may not find that fascinating, but it's not going to have its intended effect on us because we're only going to hear it as a word from God to them and not as a word from God to them and to us as well. I want you to hear how this book ends. This is from the very last verse, Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So it is as if if this book ends with a question and an invitation. Will we be wise and discerning? Will we consider the ways of the Lord and how we too have failed to walk in them? Will we heed the call to repentance or will we ignore the wisdom offered to us and will we therefore stumble? I want us to keep that question and that invitation in our peripheral vision as we hear what God says to the people of Hosea's generation. So let's read together in Hosea chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. 
and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. We're going to pause there and let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, we're thankful that even when we are scattered in our various homes, um, Lord, that you are still able to speak through your word. And I'm, I'm so thankful that we have copies of your word that we can read and that we have this technology that allows us to, to continue to gather around your word even when we can't do so in person. Um, so, Lord, I pray that you would bless the hearing of your word as, as we listen to it this morning, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you would have to say to us and show us in your word this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, three times in these three verses, God references the land. He says in verse 1 that the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. He says uh, that there is no knowledge of God in the land. He says that there at the end of verse 1. And then in verse 3, he says, therefore the land mourns. Now that, that phrase, the land, it's obviously speaking about the people who live in the land, but it's a reminder to us that God is speaking not just to any people, but to His covenant people. Because God had made a covenant with Abraham. He had promised Abraham not only that He would multiply his descendants, but also that He would give those descendants a land in which to live, a, a bountiful land flowing with milk and honey. But along with that promise of a land came warnings. God told the people through Moses that if they rebelled against Him, if they broke the covenant that He made with them, and if they would not turn from their sin, He would expel them from the land that He had given them. So God, one of the phrases God says is that He would vomit them out of the land. So the land was a gift that God had given. It was not a wage they had earned. And because it was a blessing God had given, it was something that He could then take away. He was willing, as, as Colby put it last week, He was willing to revoke His blessings from them if that's what it took to awaken them to their need for repentance. At the beginning of Hosea's ministry, there was an outward appearance of blessing. The land and its people were enjoying a season of peace and prosperity. This era in which Hosea began his ministry is sometimes called the second golden age. The first golden age being the time when David and Solomon reigned as king. All the external visible metrics of blessing were looking up. The Jerusalem Stock Exchange was thriving, so to speak. Everyone's portfolios were fat. There didn't seem to be any external threats, all that kind of stuff. But those visible metrics of blessing were deceiving because underneath the nation was filled with the rot of sin and rebellion against God. As he puts it in verse 2, there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. God is saying, think about the, the various Ten Commandments that He's saying they have broken there. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Everybody thought 
that things were hunky-dory, when in reality, it's as if the fabric of creation itself was tearing at the seams. The land itself mourns, God says. This is language that Paul would echo in Romans 8 when he said that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The problem is that people were not living in that reality. It's as if they had turned a deaf ear to the groaning of creation. They were blind and deaf to it. And so God's Word through Hosea is intended to shake them out of that slumber. And the way God does this is startling when you really step back and think about it. He says in verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now that's not a typical way we speak of one another. I don't know that I've ever said I have a controversy with that person. I might say I have a problem with them or I have a bone to pick or something like that. But what God is saying here is stronger than that. He's not just saying I have a problem with how Israel is living. I don't like it. The word that's translated controversy, it was a legal word. It's something that you would use in a courtroom setting. So we might paraphrase it by saying the Lord has a lawsuit against the inhabitants of the land or the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. God is effectively suing His people, as it were, summoning them to court to give an account for their wrongdoing. Now, before we kind of just rush past that, I want us to pause and marinate on that for a moment. Because thus far in this book, God has described this nation as His bride. He has described the people of the nation as His children. And now we find God essentially pressing charges against them in the court of His justice. When He says, I have a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, God is effectively placing Himself in the place of a prosecuting attorney. So before we rush past that image too quickly, I just want you, wherever you are, to pause and ask yourself this question. Could I ever bring myself to press charges against my own spouse or against my own children? Now, of course... That's something we all hope we would never have to do because for most of us to do something like that, it would have to be an incredibly dire situation. And that's part of the point, that these are grave circumstances. For a good father to press charges against his own children, for a good husband to press charges against his own wife, we would expect that he's doing so because this is the only thing that will bring them back from the precipice of ruin. I've known of parents who have had to call the police on their own children before, and it was obviously a painful act of love. What God does here is even more striking than that, because God does not just call the police, as it were. He Himself goes to court and prosecutes the case against His own people. And there are essentially three charges that God brings against His people. Look again at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. And this is what He says. There is no faithfulness 
or steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. So these are the three indictments that God has against His people. The first indictment is no faithfulness. The second indictment is no steadfast love. And the third indictment is there is no knowledge of God in the land. We're going to let those three accusations frame the way that we read the rest of this book because the rest of the book is going to be God making the case for those indictments. But I want to set aside the specifics for a moment so that we can simply reflect on the the big picture of what God is doing here. So the rest of the book of Hosea is essentially going to follow a pattern around three themes. And we're going to find these three themes in, in all of the prophets. Here are the three themes. First, there are accusations of sin. Second, there are warnings of judgment. And third, there are promises of restoration. I just want us to think about those themes for a moment this morning. Accusations of sin, warnings of judgment, promises of restoration. And here's the question that I want to pose to you. Which of those three do we find most pleasant? If we're talking about other people, we might not have a problem with accusations of sin or warnings of judgment. When it comes to ourselves, however, we probably feel a whole lot more comfortable with the theme of restoration, don't we? But one of the fundamental premises of the prophets is that you cannot take a shortcut to restoration. You cannot skip straight to restoration. It's especially true the longer someone has engaged in a pattern of unrepentant sin and self-deception. So we need to avoid the temptation to, to take a shortcut, to cut the tension and to skip straight to restoration. You cannot arrive at the joy of restoration until you have walked through the pain of acknowledging your sin, which is agreeing with God's accusations of sin and doing what you must to repent of it, which includes accepting the judgment that He levels. When my small group was discussing uh, the sermon last Sunday afternoon, we talked about how the book of Hosea stretches our understanding of God's love. And I've been thinking about that all week. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. God is love. Now, there's a, there's a right way and a wrong way to handle that statement. The wrong way is where we develop a concept of what we think love is, or maybe what other people have told us love is, and then we try to conform our understanding of God to that definition. We end up trying to squeeze God into a box in which He simply will not fit. The right way to handle the statement that God is love is by conforming our definition of love to what God tells us about Himself in the Bible. In other words, God does not contort Himself until He fits into our preconceived notions about what love is. 
He gives definition and shape to love by what He says and does. So rather than shrinking our view of God down until He fits into what we think love is, we have to stretch our definition of love. We have to expand it based on what we find God saying and doing in His Word. We can't fashion a God of our own imagination. We have to listen to what the true and living God has revealed about Himself in His Word. Now here's how that works itself out practically in the book of Hosea, and especially in these three verses. When we hear God say, for example, that He's going to revoke His blessings from Israel, we have a choice. We could say, well, that doesn't seem like a loving thing for God to do. I mean, God told Hosea um, back in chapter 2, He said, Plead with your mother Israel, lest I strip her naked and make her like a wilderness. I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will take back my grain in its time. I will put an end to all her mirth. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. We could read that and say, sure doesn't sound like God is being very loving. Or the other choice we could make is we could humble ourselves before God and we could say, God is love. Therefore, whatever He says and does gives shape to what love is. So apparently, this too is love. All of these accusations of sin, all of these warnings of judgment must be loving, otherwise God would not do them. And that then forces us to sit back and to meditate a bit longer, that apparently we have to go back to the drawing board and reconsider what we think love is. There is more to it than we sometimes think. See, God knows something that we often forget. He knows how harmful and devastating sin is to our lives. It's not always obvious. It doesn't always happen quickly. But sin is this corrosive presence. It, it eats away. It quietly and slowly destroys. It erodes joy and holiness, gentleness and patience. It corrupts peace and goodness. And so the most loving thing God can do is not to sweep our sin under the rug and say, it's no big deal. No, He wants us to see it in all of its ugliness because He wants us to be repulsed by it so that we will turn to Him. He sees how harmful, how devastating sin is in our lives. And He wants us to be freed from that. Only by trusting in Him, only by receiving the gift of repentance can we be healed from the harm that sin has caused in our lives. But getting to repentance can sometimes be painful. Paul says in Romans 2 that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But sometimes God is kind in ways that do not fit our minds. The path to repentance and restoration are not always easy. Still, it is better than the alternative. So here's, here's the bottom line. The pain of loving accusation and judgment is better than the harm of unrepentance. 
God is more willing for us to endure the pain of loving accusation and judgment as opposed to allowing us to endure the harm of unrepentance. God knows that His people cannot experience the joy of restoration until they have acknowledged the ugly reality of their sin and turned from it. So in this totally counterintuitive way, God displays His kindness and love through accusation and through judgment. It's not that God accuses us of sin and judges us, and then He begins to love. It's that He loves His people by helping them to see their sin, to acknowledge it, and by helping them to have a desire to turn from it. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. Now, how does this apply to us? Um, For one thing, we have to factor in what Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ by grace through faith, then all of the judgment against your sin has been satisfied perfectly at the cross. And the empty tomb is God's guarantee of that truth. But that is only if you are genuinely in Christ. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, not everyone who participated in all of the outward acts of being an Israelite was truly a child of God. And Jesus says the very same thing in the Gospels, that there are many people who do things in my name, and yet I will say to them, I never knew you. So in the words of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Strive to show that you are saved. And if you are truly in Christ, then you cannot minimize your own sin. Because if we minimize our sin, we'll end up minimizing the cross. The cross of Jesus is simultaneously a sign of God's love for sinners and a sign of God's hatred for sin. So you cannot look at the cross in truth and say, my sin is not that bad. No, the cross says, this is how bad my sin is, that it took the death of the sinless Lamb of God for me to be restored and reconciled to a holy God. So rather than minimizing sin, the life of a believer should be characterized by a desire to agree with God's assessment of my sin, to uproot sin in my life, and to put on the righteousness of of Jesus. So I, I, my encouragement to you today is, is, is this. Spend some time confessing your sin to God. Rejoice in His willingness to forgive and to cleanse. He, he, he promises in His Word, if we say we're without sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to purify you and to renew you, to restore you. So go through the pain of loving accusation so that you can arrive at repentance and restoration. And then you'll be able to say with the hymn, 
my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful truth that for those who trust in you, the entirety of our sin has been nailed to the cross. And Lord, it can be a painful exercise for us to acknowledge the entirety of our sin. But I pray that you would help us to do that because it's what you command us to do in your word. It's what you do by your spirit as you convict us of our sin. And Lord, ultimately we see that the more sin we acknowledge, the more of your grace we are rejoicing in. Because my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And that would then lead us to praise you with our whole soul, that we would rejoice in you and worship you. And Lord, if there is anyone who is, is hearing the sound of my voice right now who they are not sure where they stand with you, they're not sure about their relationship with you, maybe they have partaken in some external acts and yet in their heart they have never truly surrendered to you, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would convict them, that you would afflict them until they turn from their pride and their attempts to save themselves and that they would turn in faith to Jesus and put their trust wholly in Him. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would move and, and work through Your Word and that You would help us to draw near to You. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.